And in Wisconsin and Minnesota, winter is a harsh, prolonged reality. The snow starts in late October, so early that most kids have to wear snow pants under their superhero costumes or their princess dresses at Halloween. I did when I was a kid. And it's beautiful and exciting at first and everybody gets excited about having a white Christmas, about having the perfect snowy backdrop for your Christmas trees and your lights. And then the holidays end and the brutal dead of winter is still to come in January and February. And it feels really, really bleak. The wind chill gets so low, your face hurts. That's not an exaggeration. People get in car accidents from the ice and you wake up dreading shoveling your driveway for the third time that week because the snow just won't quit. <laughs> and just when it seems like winter will never end after four or five months of snow, something happens. A little burst of color shoots up from the ground. I don't know if you've ever heard of the crocus flower. This is what it looks like. Um, usually around March, when things are starting to get a little bit warmer and little patches of snow start to melt away, these beautiful bright little flowers shoot up from the ground and they're blooming amidst the snow that's still there and the dead grass. So even though it very much so looks like winter is still there, and it is, the snow will come again. <laughs> the crocus flowers are hope that spring is coming. Winter will not last forever. Every year they are proof that the beginnings of new life are on their way. This happens about the time of year when the temperatures start to get above freezing <laughs> and wild northerners run outside in their shorts and their t-shirts acting like it's sunny in 75. <laughs> it seems crazy, but we Wisconsinites and Minnesotans say, look at the crocus flowers. Look at those patches where the snow is melting. Spring is coming. Look at the temperature. I can feel it. It's on its way. When I put a t-shirt on, on a 35 degree day, and I'm getting a taste of the summer I know is coming, you might think I'm crazy for doing so, especially you Southerners. And that would be fair. <laughs> but I can point to things that are evidence that the winter is receding. We are in our last week of the book of James, wrapping it up with chapter five, and this section of the book in my mind, if I had to sum it up, is about what faith actually looks like as we stand in between the resurrection of Jesus that has already occurred and brought new hope and new life to the world and the end of the story when God says, I am going to make all things new and I will bring the new heaven and the new earth, right? We are living in the time between the resurrection that brought living hope and the other end of eternity where we get to be with Jesus and he makes all things right again. And the fact of that is that life in our time, sometimes even with the resurrection still feels like it's still winter. Like the snow just keeps falling and it's icy and it's cold and there's death and darkness all around me. Even with the hope of the resurrection, we are still not at the end of the story yet where God transforms this whole thing into his paradise, right? 
And so James meets us in his usual direct way and says, this is faith in our time. This is what you do in the waiting between the hope that we have and the future that is to come. The in-between time where you are still waiting for spring. Sometimes when we are suffering or when we are waiting for God to show up or when we doubt he's even there, it just feels cold and dark. Um, But I would like to present to you the fact that we can look to the resurrection and to our faith like a crocus flower and say that spring is on its way. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to James chapter 5, verse 7. This is how James approaches the issue. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James gives us three examples of faith in our time. The farmer, the prophets, and Job. I think all of these examples point to one really important truth that we often miss in our culture. If you remember back to a few weeks ago when we were going through James chapter 2, talking about faith and works and the relationship between those two, how they're really inextricably connected, um, you'll remember me saying, I told you that we need to renovate our idea of faith. I think that for most of us, our concept of what faith actually means is fuzzy at best and tainted by our culture at worst. So there's some things we need to unlearn. One of those things was that faith doesn't necessarily require works or that you can earn your way to God's favor with works. But what I want to talk about today is a second myth that has to do with this unfortunate cultural concept we have of blind faith. You ever heard of this, blind faith? The reason I say it's an unfortunate cultural concept is that I think that blind faith has nothing to do with biblical faith. And if we start thinking that biblical faith is blind faith, we've got our ideas all messed up. So I want you to throw out the idea of blind faith, (laughs) toss it out the window. And I'm gonna show you what I mean and why I think we need to do that. I think James will show us today that faith is not blind, not Christian faith at least, because trusting in God is not like wishing on a star. It's not like throwing pennies in a wishing well. It's not like crossing your fingers and hoping that things work out. James shows us through these examples that faith means looking to the evidence that we can point to, like a crocus flower, and saying, I believe because of that. Okay, three examples. First one, the farmer. Now, contrary to popular belief, 
Um, though I am from America's dairy land, <laughs> and not all of my homeland is made up of dairy farms. <laughs> so believe it or not, I don't really know a whole lot about farming. <laughs> I am a city girl. <laughs> and um, I don't know how much you know about farming, but let's take what we know about farmers and really think about this. Why does James say, look at the farmer? How does a farmer wait? Well, as a city girl, let me tell you what I do know. The farmer does not go get a lawn chair, pull it up to his field, take a seat and say, God, now when you want this puppy to grow, I'll be here. And you do that, <laughs> right? What does he do? He cultivates the soil, he plants the seed, and then he expects that the seasons will deliver rain as they always do, that's necessary for growth. Now, there's a part that he can do and a part that he can't, right? He has to cultivate the soil and plant the seed. But then after that, he is completely dependent on the rains to come. He has no control over that. He has no control over when or whether they will come and water his crops. If the rain does not come on time, he must just be patient and expect that one day it will. And this is the example that James gives us of faith. He says, when you look around and you see a barren field with no growth, be like the farmer, be patient for the coming of the Lord. And he says, establish your hearts. So there's a part we can do, establish our hearts, and a part that we can't do, bring the rain. <laughs> we have to wait for God to do that. I want to show you that there's this idea that faith is more of an active expectation and hope, as sure as the farmer knows that the rains will come. I mean, if the rains are late, what other choice does the farmer have but to believe that they're going to come someday? If the early rains don't come, he will wait for the later rains. If the later rains are late, he just keeps waiting. And when he sits there and waits for the rains to come, we don't think that the farmer is foolish for still hoping that they will, right? We don't think that the farmer has blind faith or foolish hope that one day the rain's going to show up because we know that that's how God has set the seasons into motion and that year after year, sometime the rain will come and water the flowers or the plants or the crops and they will grow every year. It's like the crocus flower signaling spring. There's evidence. He's not foolish. He just says, the rains always come, so they will come again. Example two, the prophets. Jewish recipients would have known the stories of the prophets like the back of their hand, and we've gone through a lot of them in like the past year or so in Wesley. And so you'll probably remember that these men, the prophets, have crazy stories of faith. They do wild things, and they prophesy big promises to the people. Um, things happen like Israel is conquered by another foreign nation, and they're being hauled off to slavery. And people like Jeremiah still say, hey, guess what? One day God's going to bring you back here, and he will establish you in this land. You will return. But it doesn't really seem like it when they're being hauled off in chains. We have people like Isaiah and Ezekiel who say, 
okay, you know, you're dealing with idol worship and sin, and you're treating each other poorly right now, but one day God's going to deal with your sin in a really permanent way. He's going to send you a Messiah. He's going to take your hearts of stone and give you hearts of flesh. But that can look like a crazy promise when you're looking at a nation like Israel at the time, who is bowing to all sorts of foreign gods, doing child sacrifices, hurting one another, treating people and manipulating each other. It's just, it seems inconceivable, but they still prophesy these big promises. And so the people say to them, okay, awesome. You say that this is going to happen, and if I'm going to believe this crazy big promise, um, when exactly is it going to happen? And really the answer is just soon. <laughs> soon. God's soon, let me tell you, is not like our soon. <laughs> and so decades go by and things seem to get even more bleak and they've been in exile for years or situation back home is really devolving and so if I'm the prophet I'm going to go back to God and say hey it's been decades can you do what you said you were going to do God says I am when soon and God soon is not like our soon so why on earth would the prophets keep believing in the promises of God when things look so bleak, it looks like the depths of winter, and the only word they're hearing from God is soon. <laughs> Turn with me to Lamentations chapter 3, if you have your Bibles. This is from the prophet Jeremiah. He sees his city, Jerusalem, being sacked by the Babylonians and his people being carted off. He sees devastation beyond anything we have ever seen. And this is what he says. And if you have a picture of faith that it's all supposed to be sunshine and rainbows and puppies, you're about to meet Jeremiah. <laughs> and you'll just see that that's not true. Okay, Jeremiah 3, 4, Lamentations 3.14. I have become the laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope in the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Um, to use the language we've been using, it's the dead of winter. <laughs> but this I call, call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Why on earth, based on the devastation that is around Jeremiah, does he believe that that is true? Right? 
If the first half of what we read is true, why does he believe that the second is true? To the eyes of the world, this might look crazy, but James knows and he wants us to know that this is not blind faith that Jeremiah has. This is based on the evidence of God's faithfulness and character in the past, right? James says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so as you look to the future, you can expect that he will be again. It's not blind faith. The prophets look to the past, and they see that as evidence. And they apply that to the future. If you have ever thought of faith as something where you have to just check your brain at the door and check your reason at the door, that's just for lack of a better word, baloney. (laughs) Faith is engaging your mind to put the pieces together, looking at the evidence and interpreting what that means for the future. The Hebrew word that is used for God's faithfulness is tied to sturdiness, trustworthiness, reliability. That means that when I have faith in God and I believe that he is faithful, it's like stepping out onto a ledge and believing it's going to hold your weight because you've seen it hold people's weight before. If I believe in God, I reason that he is reliable and so I can put my weight on him. I can trust him to hold me up. I can trust that he will not break or bend or change. It's not blind faith. Not despite the evidence, but based on evidence. Example three, Job. Now, we talked about Job a while ago and if you remember job lost everything right he went through hell on earth basically and the thing is that job may seem to us like a bad example of faith because let me tell you job complains (laughs) he's not happy with god if you are looking for an example of faith where somebody is just so upbeat and positive and just has sunshiny hope for the future that is not job job complains but you know who he complained to god like david did in the psalms um do you ever read any of the psalms and feel like this is bad like you're not allowed to say this stuff right (laughs) you read david saying things like break the teeth of my enemy (laughs) crush them like bugs under your feet you're like that's bad you can't you can't say that right (laughs) here's the thing we look to god's character in the past and see the evidence of who he is but make no mistake (laughs) life on earth in between the resurrection and the coming of the new heavens and earth is still messy (laughs) and god does not expect that faith means that you pretend that it's not messy God does not want you to treat him like you treat the 95% of people you encounter throughout the day who you say you're doing pretty good to, even though what you really mean is that you had a really tough night last night, you feel so angry you could put your fist through a wall, (laughs) you're so frustrated. First of all, he knows better. And second of all, he can take it. He can take it if you say, hey, I feel like you're distant. I'm kind of mad about that. Look what Job says. This is Job 13, 15. This is brutal. He says, though he slay me, 
I will hope in him. Yet, I will argue my ways to his face. Here we see it. Job makes no mistake that things are messy right now. He feels like God is just giving him a really rough go of it. And he says, yet I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. There's this tension between believing in God's goodness, but also being real enough with God to say, hey. <laughs> Life in between where we've been and where we're going is messy. So these are our three examples. Um, I think that we've bought into this idea from our culture that religious faith is believing or accepting something despite evidence and despite your reason. Um, We think of a leap of faith. Um, But what do these people do? Why does the farmer believe that the rains are going to come? Why does Job trust God? Why do the prophets trust God? They look to the past. See, Christian faith begins by engaging our minds. Um, It's not a blind leap of faith into the dark. It begins with thinking and reasoning. I'd like to call it eyes wide open leaping. It's an informed leap, not a blind leap. We don't have our eyes closed. We have our eyes open looking towards what has been and hoping for what will be. It begins with our minds and our reason. You don't have to check your faith at the door, but it doesn't end there. Faith is radical commitment and action that shows that I actually believe that God is going to do what God said he is going to do. So let's look at what James says later in the chapter. Chapter 5, verse 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. When I say that faith looks like that, do you have that? Is that what you do? Faith begins with thinking and reasoning, but it does not end there. Faith is radical commitment and action that shows that I believe that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. So do you do that? Because here's the thing. If we really understand the fact that faith is not a blind leap, it's a eyes wide open leap, an informed leap, that changes everything. We recognize that the crocus flower has bloomed, and so I act like spring is coming instead of like I'm living in a wintertime world, right? And when I know that the crocus flower has bloomed, it makes all the sense in the world that I participate in an obedient faith. 
the crocus flower of Jesus' resurrection shows that God is moving the world, world towards renewal and restoration, and it will all culminate when Jesus returns to make all things right. And if that is true, it makes all of the sense in the world to obey in the present, to be patient in the present, to praise in the present. So when you are suffering, do you pray? Or do you grumble? James says, don't grumble. <laughs> If you're going to grumble, grumble to God, and that's called prayer, right? If you're cheerful, do you praise? Or are you apathetic and complacent and leaving God to the side until you need him again? If there's sin in your life, do you push it to the side or do you actually repent? If I actually believe in the resurrection, the hope that has come into the world, and the hope that will come when God brings all things to right, how do I act in the present? James says, we have considered those blessed who have been steadfast. If I have discerned that the story of Jesus is true, it should change how I think about everything because everything in my life is part of where God is taking this world and I have to choose. Am I going to continue to act like we're living in winter? Or am I going to act like we're heading towards spring? Here's where I want to land, and the band can come up. I wish we talked more about the day-to-day -day lived experience of a Christian who looks out at the world and sees deadness, <laughs> darkness, evil around us. Because it's just true. Like We have hope in the resurrection, but things are not all good here you know that we know that and the experience of waiting for god to make all things new will be a part of our lives for the rest of our lives unless jesus decides to wrap things up here before we pass away right and it'd be nice if god looked at your life and said you want to get from here to there bam there you go and that might happen like twice in your life <laughs> So we have to get really good at waiting. More often than not, waiting on God means that he asks you to trust him over weeks and months and years as he works in your life, but undoubtedly his will will be done. Here's the thing. I think you and I are really concerned on getting from point A to point B, from death to life, from where we are to where we want to be. But God is really invested in the meanwhile in the in-between and and god loves your dreams and he cares so much about where he is taking you and taking this world he loves you so much that he cares about the desires you have but getting there isn't really the point with him what happens in the meanwhile and how he shapes you is the point because here's the truth he sees your dream but he wants you to want him more than you want your dream job. He wants you to want him more than you want that person or a person, more than you want the kids and the white picket fence or acceptance or influence or whatever it is, popularity, name it. He wants you to want him more than you want any of that. 
And I've met God in the most tangible way in the lag times between where I am and where I want to be. Those seasons where you're like, God, what is going on? (laughs) What am I doing here? Where are we going? I'm so lonely or I'm so frustrated or I'm so disheartened or I feel incapable. And the question is not whether God is there. The question is, how are you at handling waiting? Because I think the way you wait on God has so much to say about the way you feel about him. The way you wait says so much about how you feel about Jesus. Do you want Jesus or do you want what Jesus will do for you? Are you more interested in his provision or do you love him so much that what happens to you in this life pales in comparison to the joy that is knowing him? Do you want Jesus or are you here because you want the community that this house provides? Do you want Jesus or do you just want your ticket to the good place and his comfort in the meantime? Uh, These are real questions we have to deal with. Do you want Jesus or do you want what he can do for you? Friends, I say this from a place of so much love because as I think about our seniors heading on and you going into your summertime, what I want for you more than anything, more than for you to understand the Bible, for you to love my sermon, for you to understand the story of Job, is for you to want Jesus more than anything. Do you understand the all-surpassing worth of knowing him? Because that's where real faith comes from. The kind of faith that's like the prophets and Job that says, I don't care what it looks like around me right now. I love you and I am so convinced that you are good that not only do I believe that you will do what you you say you are going to do, I'm actually okay with it if I never get to see that come to fruition. because all I will ever need is you with me. And I know that many of us are feeling deep aches within us. I know a lot of you. And I I know, I know my own heart and yours, and that there are real feelings of, if God is good, why does my life still look like this? I, I think you know me well enough to know that I've been there. And here's the truth, my dear friends. God hardly ever comes when I want him to or how I want him to. And so the temptation is to allow your circumstances to be the roadblock of recognition. To say that because he's not measuring up to my expectations, that means he's not there. And if we do that, we miss him altogether. Often the way God meets us is a lot more messy and slow and complex than we want. Look at the prophets. Look at Job. Look at the manger. Look at the cross. Right? And we can avert our eyes and claim he's not actually with us. Or we can say, look at the crocus flower. I have hope. James 5 is for those of us with angst and broken hearts and frustration and tragedy in our lives. It is an invitation to, instead of letting my circumstances dictate God's goodness, to realize that he has come to suffer with me. 
And any conception that he is not present with you is a lie from the enemy. That's not in question. The question is, do you want him? Do you want him? And if you do, does your faith look like a radical expression of trust? Where you acknowledge that we are living in a wintertime world, but you say, I see the spring and I'm going to live like the spring is coming. Do you want him? Do you trust him? Pray with me. God, I thank you that there is just an abundance of evidence that you have been faithful in the past and you will be again. God, you don't call us to live with blind faith, to have foolish hope despite evidence, but you invite us into faith that is based on evidence. And God, I just thank you so much for the ways that you have showed up time and time again, that you are reliable and sure and trustworthy. God, I thank you for the hope of the resurrection that we can say that one day you will make all things new and that we can participate in that right now as we wait for what is to come. And God, as we wait for what is to come, I just pray that you would help us knock out of the way whatever it is that we want more than you. You care about our hopes and our dreams, but what is best for us is to want you more than anything. And so, God, I just pray that you would strengthen our hearts. That we would be determined to let nothing taint our perception of you, to knock down the walls, to knock down the idols. until you are in the very first place in our hearts. And God, I just pray that we would live out of that truth. God, I thank you that you suffer with us in the meantime as you bring about what is to come. And I pray that you would have us, help us to have the patience as we wait. In Jesus' name, amen.